I'd like to thank Aaron K for sponsoring this week's Torah content. June is less than a month away, which means that I'll soon be transitioning into summer writing mode with more Substack articles and fewer recorded shirim. The bulk of these articles will remain free. However, if you would like to support my Torah and access additional spicy written content, consider becoming a paid subscriber by going to rabbishnewest.substack.com. Okay, welcome to the first Machshava Lab Friday morning women's year of the season. Yeah. Um, I, a uh, couple announcements, uh, and then a couple of prefaces about the year. So announcements, number one, uh, I mentioned this in last night's year also is, uh, when I taught high school, then I would start every year exactly on time. And for some reason, when we switched to zoom over the last two years, I stopped doing that. Uh, and I want to start doing that at the beginning of this year. So from now on, I plan on coming on to zoom like five minutes before in case anyone wants to come on early, but then we're going to start exactly on time just because time is precious. Okay. Um, and so we don't have to awkwardly like wait, uh, for people. Okay. Uh, That's no, helpful to know. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's a, uh, and I, I meant to put that in the email, but I forgot. So I'm going to include in the email from now on and, uh, uh, that's why I didn't do that this time. Secondly, um, I think I, yeah, I announced this in the, in the, in the recent email, um, this year, uh, well, okay. In general, okay. Uh, you know, this is the same as last year, but, uh, these shirim are, are not part of Yeshiva B'nai Torah. These are my own shirim. I'm doing it on my own time. Um, and, uh, and therefore those of you who have, uh, um, contributed sponsorships, uh, it's much appreciated. Um, and, uh, this year I, I have to pay for my own zoom. So, uh, which I just got the zoom account today. If anyone wants to sponsor zoom for the whole year, it's $153. Uh, if multiple people offer to do that, then we'll just convert those into regular sponsorships. Um, so, uh, again, I'm paying for zoom. I'm paying for my, uh, uh, what do you call my, uh, podcast. And I'm also paying for my time because I, I'm actually giving a, another free women's year instead of I'm a tutoring, uh, client. Like I, I, took off one day of tutoring to, uh, to give share. So any support is much appreciated. Um, and, uh, and it could be in the form of Patreon and form of sponsorships, et cetera. So thank you to those of you who do support this though. Okay. So I think that's all for that. Oh yeah. The other thing also is we're going to keep this time for, uh, at least until Sukkot and then just see who shows up. I'm totally fine with this time on Fridays. Uh, but you know, people, committing to a certain time and then people like showing up are not always the same thing. Okay. So we'll, we'll see, but, uh, this time works for me. And if you have schedule changes that you want to inform me of, let me know because each one of you is important and I want to maximize the amount of uh, learning that we do. Okay. That's in terms of uh, bookkeeping. Okay. Now in terms of preface, all right. Uh, this is a, uh, an unusual share today. Okay. Um, it's unusual in my style because those of you who have learned with me know that the style I prefer is we go through facts together, then we raise questions together, and then we try to answer questions together, and then I like give over my ideas. This year is by default going to be much more like me sharing insights that I have, but I want to encourage participation. Like we're, this is not going to be rooted in a text, even though we will go through text. Um, this is a shear that I decided to do last minute. I had a whole other shear prepared. And then this morning I was like, nope, we're going to do this uh, because uh, I, I'm fearful that these insights are going to slip away uh, if I don't get them down in some form. And uh, I thought this is going to be a weird shear, but I got to share these insights. So, so I'm going to tell you right now, feel free to participate in addition to asking questions, but to just volunteering like ideas and insights you have on the topics we go through, because this is not us working on stuff together. This is us like thinking about ideas together and like me processing uh, something that I want to like talk out. Okay. 
Um, and uh, what, the way I've structured it, because I'm always paranoid that I won't have enough to like, uh, like uh, teach, is there's a major point in the year, and then if for some reason we end early, there's a minor point, which is which is very substantive, but it has nothing to do with the major point other than the origin. Okay. So if, if I'll, we'll stop the main shear when we're done with the main point. And then if people are still interested, then I'll share this, uh, this other point. Okay. So let's get started. So this year, what did I title this year? Uh, this year is titled, hold on. Um, uh, oops. Yeah. A new perspective on Halakha from Rav Hirsch, Ben Sor Umora and something, something, what I learned from talking to a crow elder. Okay. So, um, so for those who don't know, I went on an adventure at the end of the summer. Okay. The adventure was a trip from Mercer Island where my parents live, where I stayed for the summer to the crow Indian reservation in Montana. Okay. Now Google here tells us that it is uh, 888 miles. I actually stayed in Wyoming uh, and then drove back and forth between Wyoming and the Crow Reservation and drove back. It was a 2,257 miles of driving in five days, which was very uh, exhausting, but in a good in a good way. Um, the reason I went to the Crow Reservation, uh, in short, is this book called uh, Radical Hope, Ethics in the Face of Cultural Devastation by Jonathan Lear. Jonathan Lear is an amazing writer. He has the distinction of being three things, which uh, explain how I found him. He is if he is a uh, a considers himself a student of Aristotle of Freud, but he's an independent thinker. Okay, and that's how it came to me in terms of uh, I don't even know who in my yeshiva introduced me to him, but um, but he had uh, he has books where he talks about Freudian psychoanalysis and books where he talks about Aristotle, and he's very interested in ethics. Okay, so uh, in short, what this book is about is uh, the is a guy named Plenikus who was the last chief of the Crow Indians, who in the 1880s uh, saw that, you know, Indian tribes all over the United States were being uh, uh, decimated by the white man. Okay. And by the way, the, uh, for anyone who's like politically sensitive, uh, Crow Indians prefer to be called Indians, not Native Americans or indigenous peoples. Okay. So I'm not being like offensive here. Um, and basically Plenty Coups uh, successfully through Chachma and creative imagination successfully adapted his tribe and their values to the uh to the changing world and in doing so preserved uh his culture whereas other uh indian tribes either their culture was totally decimated or the people were wiped out and in fact plenikus was able to preserve uh his uh the crow reservation on the actual uh lands that the crows had been on as opposed to like these other indian tribes that were like kicked off uh and put on like the trail of tears and other things like that so i read this book in uh in the summer of 2021 is that right yes and i read it because um because it, the, the the subtitle ethics in the face of cultural devastation is that it wasn't just that Plenty Coups sensed that the that like they were going to be taken over by the white man. He saw that the entire way of life and the entire philosophy of of his people was being threatened, and that the concepts by which they defined their lives were going to go out of existence. And that was the challenge. How do you prepare for a new world where the concepts that you use to conceive of yourself and your people and the, and to give meaning to your life are no longer relevant? So what I did was I, I heard that this is what the book was about, and I read it 
in the uh, question. Yes. So yeah. It's just understanding and understanding what it's saying. I mean, I, I'm reading it, but I, I had this question also. Are you saying that Plenty Coos was aware that his concepts were going and he was he was trying to adapt, or that the author is identifying that that's what he was doing, but he, so Plenty Coos wasn't necessarily the aware. Author is a, is is saying that that's what Plenty Coos. Uh, uh, that's the author's interpretation of Plenty Coos, and the author says, "I don't know what's actually going through Plenty Coos's mind." Uh, you know, how much okay, of this is conscious or not. Yeah. So, um, so I read this in order to, uh, I read this uh, uh, on Shiva Asabatamu's because I thought this would be a very good, this might give me insight into what Claudius Rall faced and what the leaders of Claudius Rall faced in Hurban by Shani when we were going to be kicked out of the land, you know, uh, into who knows how long of an exile, uh, taking a, a Mikdash centric Judaism and and becoming something else, you know, facing all these threats. And so that's why I read the book and it blew my mind. It, it totally blew my mind. It changed my whole relationship to the three weeks and the nine days in Tishbab. In fact, I read it again on Tishbab and like it changed my, I gave a Tishbab here based on it. Uh, and I um, will include this in the chat. I wrote, I haven't written a lot about it because it's hard to write. So I wrote this article called 17th of Tom's Reflections on Waikiki because uh, that's where I was when I first read it. Uh, that's a slightly longer article. And then I wrote this uh, one page article uh, to capture my thoughts on Tishbov called the necessity of metaphysical trauma for national chuva. You don't, uh, you know, <laughs> don't read them now, but um, uh, I, uh, it, it blew my, my, my world. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to journey to the Crow reservation in order to gain more knowledge about this and to like assess on my own. I wanted to talk to Crow Indians and like, like, you know, see on my own, you know, first of all, to deepen the reality of these ideas in my mind. And secondly, like this is like SD mentioned, this is the author's take on these um, uh, on on what on what happened. And I wanted to like try to see, you know, to what extent like did Plankus actually succeed in doing this? Like if I talk to the crows now, what am I going to find? OK, so I wanted to do this trip last year in the summer, but everything was closed for COVID. So this year I read it again for a third time, got more insights and then decided kind of on the spur of the moment to uh, to take this five day trip. Um, and so I went to, where are we here? So I went to Plenty Coos's home. That's, that's his, his home, which became a state park. Um, I thankfully, uh, almost by happenstance was put in contact with a professor, uh, professor Tom McCleary, who is professor of Crow studies, who actually helped the author research the book. And he basically spent the whole day with me and just answered all my questions and took me all around, which was amazing because I was worried that if I came in and talked to anyone, no one's going to understand this weird philosophical angle that I'm coming from. But he helped, he like, he did with me what he did with the author of the book and he read the author's book. So like, it was a really, really great thing. And then I met with uh, this guy named Dale Oldhorn, uh, who is one of the elders of the Crow tribe and talked to him about it. Um, and, uh, and, uh, it ended up being just this great trip. Okay. Now, um, today's sheer is not going to be about anything having to do with playing coups or radical hope or anything like that, um, that you have to read the book and we can discuss it, but this is not at all about that. This is from an insight that I got from talking to the crow elder. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so, um, the, uh, the crow this, is, is active right now. Like they, they, they exist in a, as a group. Yes. So the crows are, uh, they do exist. Uh, they are on the reservation. Uh, I forgot the number of, let me see, hold on just a second here. How many crow Indians are there? I think it's like 8,000. No, 11,000. Okay. So the tribal membership is, is 11,000. Oh, 8,000 live on the crow, uh, reservation. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to talk to him, you know, again, to see like, 
you know, <laughs> to what extent does he think that, I mean, I, he didn't read Jonathan Lear's book, but like to what extent, you know, is what Jonathan Lear wrote, is it actually like true on the ground? You know, that was kind of like my mission. The preface though, to, to like, like this thing is when I mentioned to professor McCleary that I'm going to meet with Dale Oldhorn, he said, Oh, Dale, he's a real character. Uh, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, he's a very colorful man who has, um, his own opinions about things. And, uh, you know, I kind of like, like a, a lot of people of Asian descent, like all native Americans are ultimately, it's kind of hard to tell how old he is, you know, but if you've ever talked, uh, there's a certain category of old man, probably old woman also, but, uh, there's a category of old man that like a person who is, who is intelligent and articulate, but like he is set in his ways and he has his own ideas about things. And sometimes you need to like ask a question from many different angles to get him to like actually talk about what you're interested in. So it was a little frustrating in talking to him because I couldn't get straight answers to all the questions that I had. And in fact, I accidentally snapped this picture, which captures like my like incredulity at like <laughs> when he's like, I like it perfectly captures like him, like, like spouting off on one of his, like uh, his, uh, his own views and me just kind of like, like, okay, yeah, yeah. Indulging him. Um, so, um, so thankfully though, the very first thing he told me was uh, was a tremendous insight, and that's the basis of this year. Okay, so the insight he told me was, I'm calling this, actually, this is his name for it, the four Ps. Okay, now I don't know if he, if this, if he came up with this on his own, or if uh, he read this somewhere. I tried looking for it, like, just by Google searches, and I couldn't find anyone who said this. So this might be his own idea. Hold on, loud plane flying overhead. Um just one second. Uh, why can I not pause the report? Oh, whatever. Okay. Um, so, you know, again, he is not, he's articulate, but he's also not articulate. So I'm going to fill in the gaps based on my own understanding. Okay. So what are the, what are the four P's? So these are the four P's of, I'm going to call it cultural, um, thriving. And what would be the opposite of thriving? Deterioration. Okay. And they are, and I'll, I'll, I'll list them all out and then I'll define them. Okay. And they're in descending order. Okay. So from, from, from ideal to like, uh, like from good to bad. Okay. Practice, oops, practice, participation, um, protection and preservation. Okay. So, uh, again, this is my understanding of what he said. And what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to define them. And then like, we'll give an example in Judaism. Okay. So practice is, um, is you are fully, you have fully bought into, bought into the lifestyle of the culture slash religion and you live it. Okay. So the example, uh, would be, um, let's just for lack of a better term. Okay. A, a, I'll just say a practicing Jew practicing Jew. Okay. So keeps halacha, um, believes the ideas, embraces the braces, the values, etc. Okay. So that is practice. Okay. Participation is you partially, okay. Buy into the lifestyle and partially don't. Okay. So an example of this would be, uh, let's just say the 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 child of orthodox jewish parents who goes to shul because his parents make him um uh kind of keeps shabbos okay uh etc 
you know, uh, another example would be, uh, this is less common, I think, in uh, in the parts of New York that many of us are from, but like in Seattle or out of town, I guess, it's very common for people to attend Orthodox shuls, but they drive on Shabbos, you know, or like they will, you know, uh, I guess in, uh, in many of our uh, grandparents' uh, days, like there were people who would like keep strict kosher at home and like eat at restaurants, you know? So you are, are like involved in the lifestyle or the, the religion, but you're not fully bought into it. Okay. You're not like, it would be inaccurate to describe, to describe you in Judaism as Shomer Torah Umitzvos. Okay. And there is a difference between someone, let's say, you know, you're short Shomer Torah Umitzvos, but you occasionally like, you know, do an Avera or like you, you have a really hard time, like getting up for minion or whatever. That's different. That person is still in the realm of practice, but someone who says like, okay, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to keep Shabbos. Uh, but like, I am going to use my phone on Shabbos. Like, you know, I, uh, like that's getting a little bit more from the practice of the participation, you know, uh, or like I keep all these halachos except for this one that's in the participation realm. Okay. Can I yeah, sure. try to clarify this? Yeah, that, like, yeah, practicing yeah, yeah. it is Judaism is your life, essentially. It's one lens that you view the world in, whereas participation, you kind of have like a secular lens and a Jewish lens. Or that's kind of like, it, yeah. Yeah, it's like compartmentalized. Yeah, compartmentalization. I think that's a good. Uh, I don't know if that is the definition or the example because I'm, I'm not fully clear on what he said, but that works for me, though. Okay. 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 Protection is you are not involved in the lifestyle but you support it um you support it okay so for example um uh non-religious jews who um who donate to jewish schools okay or um uh people who uh support legislation to uh to prevent uh, anti-semitism Okay, I never remember how to. I can never remember what. Okay, I don't know. I don't know what's the in vogue spelling of that with a hyphen or without a hyphen. Okay, um, or like let's say for example, uh, uh, JCC, right? Like someone told me that um, in his community, like they had a JCC event for uh, like Holocaust remembrance on Shiva Sabatamos, uh, and they served like a whole meal. You know, like like they, they clearly care about like Jewish continuity but they're not really involved in the lifestyle. You know, I mean, maybe you could debate whether JCC is in participation. These are not rigid categories, by the way. I mean, there is going to be a line probably between practice and participation, but there is a spectrum. Okay. Preservation is you don't even support the lifestyle. Okay. But you uh, have an academic interest uh, in it. Okay. So the example of this is the completely unaffiliated unaffiliated Jew, uh, or even non-Jew, okay, who, uh, who has an intellectual interest in, in, you know, uh, an obscure, uh, halachic topic, okay, or the art historian, uh, who is curious, uh, curious about, um, a particular period in uh in in jewish uh life okay uh, uh jewish uh you know uh, uh nationhood okay um so this is the person so this is preservation in the sense that like the way the way dale said it is he said like you know uh you have an academic who will like be interested in this who will write a paper for other academics it will be read by other academics and then we'll just go and be filed away in uh, in some academic library and then no one's going to look at it again okay so so those are the four p's and 
the obviously the ideal is you want all the people in your nation to be practicing it. If that starts slipping, then you at least try to get them involved in participating. If that doesn't work, then you at least like make take measures to prevent, you know, your people from being like uh, actively like targeted. And then like if that doesn't work, then at the very like at the very like, you know, uh, least you hope that to, to keep alive like certain ideas just in pure like written form or purely studied form in order to uh, to to you know keep them in existence. Otherwise, your people are forgotten altogether. OK. OK. Any questions on this? Because this is the main paradigm that we're going to be uh, examining. Any questions or comments? Yeah, I'll comment on the preservation thing, actually. Sure. I had a philosophy professor say to us, just to the class of throwaway, like, I was going to convert to Judaism just for the structure, like, uh -huh. not even because she believed in God. That's interesting. And I was like, oh, that does fall into this category, which is interesting. That is a good example of participation. And it's an unusual example for participation because most people um, who, you know, don't have like a, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't want to call that ingenuine motive, but like, people who don't buy into like the truth of the thing mm -hmm. usually are not going to go that far in like yeah. saying like, yeah, yeah, right. That's a good example. Okay. So just to flesh this out a little bit more, um, when I was talking to Dale, then I was asking him like what the greatest threats to his people were. Okay. Now he said that the absolute greatest threats are economic because economic, um, when you stifle uh, uh, people economically, then it puts them into survival mode and then other things fall by the wayside, you know? So in, in this case, I'm not going to go into the whole crow history, but like basically when um, the, the white man came, they basically like, you know, uh, you know, took the land of, uh, of, of the crows and also like even the land that they gave them, they, they like economically crippled them. And then that, that brought into that brought poverty onto the reservation and the poverty brought other problems of like, you know, alcoholism, drug use, you know, starvation. Uh, and it, what it reminded me of actually as a side point is, you know, in uh, the, uh, the, the Pesach Seder, then we have a halacha of maskil begnus umasayim b'shavach. And when you tell the story of Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, you have to start with degradation and end in praise. And you have a machlokas between Rav and Shmuel on whether the degradation refers to mitchila ovde avodazara hayu avasenu, that in the beginning our forefathers were uh, idol worshippers, and then the praise refers to the fact that God gave us the, the true religion, or whether the degradation is we were uh, slaves to Paro and Mitzrayim, and then the praise is that God freed us. OK, and, you know, basic understanding of that machlokis is that there were two dimensions of the slavery the, 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 uh, and the oppression and, and the freedom. There's the physical and then the metaphysical or the spiritual. Right. So so uh, physically we were slaves and we were put in these harsh conditions and then God freed us and gave us, uh, you know, uh, uh, freed us from the, that oppression. But then metaphysically, we were enslaved to a Vodazara and God gave us the true religion. So whenever, you know, for many years, whenever I read this halacha, I would think. You know, it's a weird mach locus because clearly the important thing is the, the spiritual or metaphysical freedom. Like that's that's the essence of it. Right. We don't just this is not Disney's The Prince of Egypt or not. Yeah. Dis, uh, DreamWorks is uh, The Prince of Egypt, where like, you know, the whole message is like, you know, I want my people to be free. Like, you know, there's no talk in that movie of like free to be involved in Yediyah Hashem, you know, and in seeking, you know, uh, Chesed Mishpat and Tzedakah. But I forgot what, what year, but one year I realized like, you know, oh, I know what it was when, when I first, the first year that I read, um, uh, Yanmi Park's, uh, book, uh, about North Korea. This is, uh, one of the North Korean refugees when she talked about how, you know, people think that, that, uh, that 
the refugees escaped North Korea because they want freedom. And she said, we didn't even know what freedom was. I mean, it was so oppressive that we didn't even know the concept of freedom. We escaped from North Korea because we wanted food. We wanted to eat. And until we know that we have like basic sustenance and are not being like thrown into prison for thought crimes, then we can't even think about like higher levels of development, you know? Um, and so like, that's really, it's, so it's true that the spiritual freedom is more is more primary in like a hierarchical value sense. Like that's what we're striving for, but on a like baseline, like hierarchy of needs thing, the physical freedom is, is the most important thing. Okay. So what Dale was saying was that his people were, you know, uh, when his people were, were crippled, like uh, economically and were plagued with poverty, then they could not focus on the values and ideas of their religion. Okay. And by the, and they were in that state for so long and are still in that state that like many other aspects of their culture have fallen by the wayside. Okay. However, what is the main thing that the crows do to try to, um, to bridge the gap from, from participation into practice. So they have this thing called the crow fair and they have it every year. Uh, I was not able to go because it would have involved me staying there for Shabbos. Um, but it is basically a weekend where they get together, they sing crow songs, they do crow dances. They like do traditional crow ceremonies and all this other stuff. And the whole reservation participates in it. Okay. And just to give you a taste of what that is, I think I shared the sound. Uh, here's just a little clip. I, I apologize for those who have headphones on. I don't know how loud this is going to be. So they have all these competitions. They have all these like like presentations and stuff. Oops. Um, and uh, and this is really how this is their main method of how they get um, of of how they like try to encourage participation in the crow. Uh, way of life and in the crow religion. So I, I asked, yes, I have a sure. question also. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, just, go ahead. Are you able to just give like a short, like, or just like in general, what is their like religion, I guess, or like, what is a little bit, I know it's like a hard thing to give in a sentence or two, but yeah. like, I just have no idea. Um, the answer is no, I can't. Um, uh, it is, uh, it is loosely speaking, like if you want to categorize it in terms of other religions in your mind, um, it is a outgrow, you know, most religions pre biblical era started in like animism, like belief in like spirits and, uh, other, um, you know, like, uh, non-physical entities in nature, uh, and they have ceremonies, you know, uh, the interesting thing, and this is a whole separate topic is, um, uh, the crows are a monotheistic religion okay that were that that believes in a non-anthropomorphic creator okay uh no qualities no gender no emotions nothing and i was like huh that's interesting but the problem is and i was talking to professor mccleary about this is that because they believe in this pure non-anthropomorphic creator they don't worship him okay and they don't pray to him they pray to these other spirits and stuff and when the christians came in the 1800s, they didn't, they liked the fact that they were monotheistic, but they didn't like the fact that they didn't pray to this God. So the Christians like introduced their own word for God that kind of incorporated elements of the biblical God of like compassionate listens to prayer. And then they kind of like uh, tried to meld that with the crow uh, religion. And like, th this was a whole other share that I wanted to give. And like, I emailed 
Professor McCleary and like he wrote me a whole long email about their religion and sent me all these papers about like uh, about stuff. And I was really interested in it because this is like how Avodazar started with Dor Enosh, you know, um, but that's a whole nother thing. Uh, but but just to answer your question, uh, the, the best answer I can give is that they have ceremonies and rituals that are designed to interact with like the spirit world and these various spirits and stuff. But part of their culture and religion is that they practice whatever works and they discard what doesn't work. So when Christianity came on the scene, they, they like adopted forms of Christian prayer, you know, and like other things just shifted uh, the, the, the way, the way that, uh, that, um, <laughs> that Professor McCleary said is he said, let me preface my comments with the fact that crows are not deep philosophers when it comes to spiritual beliefs. Historically, there existed a basic framework. And from that individuals built spiritual beliefs and practices. There wasn't a priestly caste, the uh, C-A-S-T-E, there was nothing codified and religious leaders did not discuss or debate spiritual concepts. Uh, the learned religious class as such would have been called the so-called medicine men and medicine women who relied on their own dreams and prayers and visions to guide their lives. And those who came uh, for religious instruction and prayer. And he goes on and says how like it was very individualized type of religion. So that's the best I can give you, Avital. Yeah. Yeah. Essie, you had a question? Yeah. My, my, it was a complimentary question and maybe now the answer would be very short, but like, sure. um, is there something to say about why they want to perpetuate it? Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I would, I think, I can't remember if I actually tried, no, no, I didn't try to ask that question because I did not want to come across as insulting. Oh, there's the other thing I was worried about. I was, um, worried about, by the way, is like, this is an elder of a tribe and like ordinarily, like with a professor, I was very frank in my questions because he didn't take anything personally. I did not want, especially cause I am probably the first Orthodox Jew, certainly first rabbi that, uh, that this crow elder has met. I didn't want to come across. I don't want to say anything that could have been interpreted as disrespectful. So like, I didn't want to ask him like, why do you think this is worth preserving? You know? Uh, but I really okay. wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my guess though, is that, that in the same way that many cultures that are not religious or philosophical just want their way of life to continue, you know, because it, it's what, you know, it's what allows them to conceptualize themselves. It connects them to their history, you know, especially when you're dealing with the people who's oppressed, like the crows are, then, you know, like they don't want to, they don't want to lose. They don't want to lose their, uh, you know, their identity. I mean, uh, that's, that's what I assume, but uh, I don't think there's any, like, I was not aware of any, uh, what we would call like values uh, that were so unique to the crows that like uh, that, that they're trying to keep the values alive via the culture or religion. I think it was culture and religion per se. Right. Like the normal way that anybody would want their, you know, yeah, it's exactly. validation and all those kinds of things. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing specific. That's what I was asking. Thank okay, you. Okay. Good. All right. Any other questions on this for, for now? I mean, again, feel free to interrupt. I'm glad you guys are uh, participating. It's not just me spouting. Okay. So um so this crow fair, right? That's the main way that they, uh, that they, uh, uh, encourage participation. So I asked him, I said, you know, I, what I wanted to ask is, you know, in our religion, we have this phenomenon of like youth going off the derech, you know? So like, I wanted to ask like how many crow youth are going off the derech, you know? Um, oh, and by the way, this whole meeting was taking place in, uh, I, I, I drove onto the crow reservation. I was meeting in a crow cafe and I, I took this short video clip, which I posted on Facebook, if anyone has seen that uh, I went in and like, I'm used to being the only Jew in a non-Jewish uh, area, but I was the only non-crow in an entirely crow cafe. And like they're playing crow music and it's all these crows, you know, 
And it, it felt like if you know, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, but like those of you who are Star Wars fans in on the first Star Wars, the cantina scene where he walks in and it's like, it's like a different world of like, what are all these people in these languages and stuff, you know? Um, and, but I saw a lot of young people, you know, and like at one point um, when I was talking with Dale, then this young woman came up and like, I guess to pay respects to the elder. And he said, you know, oh, I, I, I liked your, uh, you know, I, I appreciated your, your dance at the crow fair. And she said, oh, thank you. You know, and then she walked away. So I was talking to Dale and I said, like, you know, I, uh, how many of the, these people who are dancing, you know, are doing this, you know, lishma, you know, like how many of them are doing it as practice? Uh, and how many of them are doing it just because like their parents drag them there. And he gave a good honest answer. He said, I can't see into their hearts. Okay. He said, there are people who are doing it, you know, because like it's what everyone else is doing. There are people who are doing it because they enjoy the physical, like music and stuff. There are people who enjoy it, who do it because they appreciate the art form. But he said, I really have no idea how many of them are doing it because, uh, they buy into it. So then I tried to be more specific. And I said, for example, that, that girl who you, you know, that young woman who you talked to, and then he interrupted me. I said, yeah, in English. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, if I spoke to her in Crow, then she wouldn't understand what I'm saying. And then he said, you know, when I, he says, when I spoke, uh, you know, he was one of the masters of ceremony. When I spoke Crow, uh, I, he said, I did almost all my announcements in Crow and maybe 5% of the people understood it. And, uh, I said, so why did you do it in Crow? And he said, because I'm hoping that like someone will become interested in Crow and like try to learn it. And then I asked him, like, when did people stop speaking Crow? So he said Crow religion and language were outlawed in the 1800s, in the mid 1800s. But people continued to practice. Um, uh, sorry, people continued to speak the Crow language until the 1950s. And then when the mothers stopped speaking it at home, then the language started to die. You know, and he says you can't teach it in college. Like people who are interested are not going to like learn it and it's not going to be a living language. Um, and the Crow religion died because of Christianity, Christianity infiltrated, uh, and, uh, and basically like started spreading certain Christian ideas and took advantage of the fact that the crows were very welcoming and, um, and pluralistic in terms of like accepting any beliefs and Christianity concealed the doctrine that the only way to God is through Jesus and they like just pushed like the appealing aspects of the religion. And then once they got members of the crow to buy into Christianity, they had the members of the crow preach against the crow religion to the members of the crow. So like, like uh, uh, Professor McCleary said that he's heard crow preachers preaching in crow about how the crow language is the devil's language, you know, uh, and like they got it from the inside out. Okay, so. This is what I'm hearing from, from Dale, okay? And here's what I'm thinking. My thought is like this. First of all, how ridiculous would it be if the way that we preserve Judaism was through having a Jew fair once a year, okay? Can you imagine a thing where like, like once a year, all the Jews get together and like all the men put on tefillin and then like put on a talus and like say Kaddish and like, and, and then that is the, that's the hope of the Jewish people. Like, I think we recognize that that would not be sufficient in order to keep this alive. But the main realization I had was I'm hearing him say like, like essentially my people are dying. And in fact, at one person, I, at one point, I think the most brazen question I asked him was like, I kept on trying to ask like, like what is going to be done to like save this. And at first point I said like, what hope do you have? Like what, what, what are you banking on? And he said, 
it really seems grim. And I, he said, I'm open to suggestions, you know, uh, which is a very humble thing. And what I'm thinking is like this. I'm thinking I woke up. Okay. And I immediately said my brachos hashachar, you know, I put on tefillin, which has in it partios of, you know, of, of the Shema with my essential values and Yetzirah Mitzrayim. You know, I put on a talus with reminders of all the mitzvahs. I had to figure out in the cabin that I was in, you know, whether the bathroom door, you know, what the separation is between that and like my davening, like, can I daven in this location? I had to figure out what location East was davening towards Yushalayim. I had to like, you know, when I went to this cafe, like I had to assess, you know, can I drink the coffee? Like because of cautious things, I take the cup and I make a bracha, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, there are all of these reminders that constantly reinforce the values of Judaism. And here now is going to be the main idea of the shir. Okay. Thankfully, I read a Rav Hirsch, the Shabbos before I went on this trip. And this might be the most beautiful description of halacha I have ever seen. Okay. The context is very weird. It's rehearsed on um, on uh, Vayikra uh, nineteen twenty seven, okay, which is about peos, okay, like like not cutting your peos, and he says like this, okay, and you don't really need to know that context, okay, just listen to the beauty. And again, this is rehearsed, so he's writing beautifully. It says like this: in the preceding verse, we are enjoined to maintain awareness of man's nobility in our enjoyment of life and in our conduct. Scripture now proceeds to those activities that relate to the human body, regarding which Scripture seeks to awaken the same awareness. For this is the whole purpose of the holiness of Jewish life, to keep us from falling into a lifeless routine, from thoughtlessness, to educate us to perform our actions with awareness and attentiveness. This holiness grasps every opportunity to awaken in our minds the awareness of those truths that form the basis of what we are and what we are meant to be. In light of these truths, we are to evaluate our actions and aims for the sake of attaining our moral purpose. For a man is not worthy of his name unless he examines his ways. And to the thinking man, there is nothing that is insignificant. <sighs> right? <laughs> yeah. So that is the essence of halacha, is that there is no action in life which is insignificant because halacha touches every single action that we do in life or every inaction. And every action that we do prompts us to think every instance of thinking is meant to direct us to think about what our values are and what our moral purpose is and what our identity is. You know, uh, in Jonathan Lear's book, you know, he talks about, um, uh, hold on just a second. Let me get the book. By the way, please appreciate how difficult it is for me to not like try to give sheer on this because it's so hard to give a sheer on a book if you haven't read the book. And I just so want to just like read to you just all these concepts um, he talks about, um, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. If I can't find it, then. Okay. The, 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 there's, um, this interview of, uh, one of the Crow women in 1930, uh, named her name was pretty shield. And, uh, and she said the, the statement she says, she says, I'm living a, a life I no longer understand. You know, and Lear like gives examples of this as he said, you know, imagine what was the role of uh, the role of crow women is that crow women were supporters. It was this is a warrior culture. Okay, so men would go out, they would hunt and they would fight against their enemies and they would bring back honor to the family and they would bring back buffalo meat. And the wives would basically like take their identity from how accomplished their husbands and sons were. And they would prepare the buffalo meat and have like festive, uh, you know, uh, meals. And and so 
fast forward from mid 1800s to 1930, and you have this Crow woman who's saying like, you know, she's on a reservation where hunting is outlawed, intertribal warfare is outlawed. She's still making the same food, but not for the same reasons. And it'd be like, you know, we we come from a, a world where we have a Shabbos meal, right? And there's a whole context of Shabbos in our week. And, 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 you know, uh, and there's a Shabbos meal in the home. And let's say like, you know, again, in, in, in average household, you know, the mother prepares the Shabbos meal and like creates this home environment of like the value of Shabbos. And, you know, people are coming home, you know, uh, uh, you know, fathers and sons uh, coming home from shul and like davening and like lighting Shabbos candles. Imagine a life in which like, you know, uh, the life of the non-religious Jew who still is making kugel and like brisket, but has no connection to like any of these ideas. It's like a, a life devoid of meaning. And halakha keeps us anchored we're in, in this in this this world where like everything we do connects us back to our values. And even for the people who are not Tamid Chachamim, who don't know why they're doing all this stuff, it still is like you know you're doing it because of halacha. And it's giving it's keeping that lifeline alive to the values of Judaism. And that is what halacha is designed to do. I mean, it's just an amazing thing, you know. Um, and uh, actually, sorry, let me just grab. Give me one second. You can think of questions if you have them. Hold on. Oh, that's not it. Oh, I can't find it. Oh, here we go. Yeah. So uh, some of you might have heard me mention uh, my uh, English teacher, Dr. Jones. Uh, so I actually emailed him. I bought this book for him uh, and uh, had him read it. And then I asked him uh, for insight into um, you know, like, like what my trip should be about. And he said that so he said the main idea of the book is he said the primary idea i got from his analysis was how complete the, the was the disjunction between their prior world the world of the crow which he says the world of the hunter and the world that followed everything prior was centered on what they thought being a crow was and so if hunting was what being a crow meant then everything everyone did regardless of what it was contributed to the crow world therefore everything that every crow did was important regardless of how menial it might have seemed that made every person and every action important. Um, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, um, uh, yeah. Okay, fine. Um, yeah. So this was a similar thing is that, that that was the natural state of the culture. And in halacha, sorry, in Judaism, that would be the state of Judaism without halacha, but it would fade whenever there's any sort of threat. Halakha keeps every action significant in the framework of, the, of our values. And that's like what Refers is saying. Okay, let me pause here if there are any questions or comments. Yeah, I have a comment actually. I sure. think a lot about this before um, Rosh Hashanah of how like in, incredible incredible it is that there's a system in which like, you know, every month or every other month there's like an intense holiday um, within Judaism to kind of like recenter you. And I don't even know if that's the intention of like how the calendar like just fell out, but every single month there's just this holiday that you kind of stop what you're doing and you think about what's going on yeah you know in life and everything and you spend meaningful time with family and then especially on Rosh Hashanah we're like look at the contrast between the Jewish New Year and the secular New Year of yeah. the secular New Year is like fireworks and celebrating and people you know like partying and stuff whereas in the Jewish New Year it's like this intense time of reflection and how am I moving forward in life and yeah. like a very deep time of, of thought. And you think about like all the different ways that right. Every single action is so meaningful. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad you mentioned Rosh Hashanah because, uh, and that example, because I have 
an anecdote I want to share, which some of you may have heard before, but I'm going to repeat it again. So um, my one of my best friends growing up uh, was uh, Sean, uh, a guy named Sean O'Neill. And he, um, we reconnected when I was in yeshiva, my yeshiva days, uh, and he became interested in Shevimitz Bnei Noach. So like he learned Hebrew, he learned, uh, you know, Shevimitz Bnei Noach. And like we had chavrusas, you know, multiple times a week. And there's this one, I believe it was like Erev Yom Kippur or Erev Rosh Hashanah. And he said, uh, we had a chavrusa. And I mentioned something about how like, okay, like we're going to cancel, uh, you know, tomorrow because it's, uh, it's, you know, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. And he said, you know, you're so lucky. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, now keep in mind, this is someone, this is Sean who fully buys into the ideas of Judaism, but he's non-Jewish. So he's not keeping halacha except for the Sheva Mitzvah. He says, you know, you have the entire month of Elul where you're thinking about Shuvah. Then you have Slichos where you're like getting up every morning and like davening to Hashem for, for, for Slicha and Nechila. Then you have Rosh Hashanah where you have the Shofar and like davening Musaf and like Isra Malacha where you're totally devoted to these ideas. Then you have the Sarasimate Shuva where you're, you're, you have like, you know, all this time to like focus on working on yourself. And then you have Yom Kippur where you fast and everyone is involved in this. He says, I just have the ideas. And like, there's only so much I can do on my own. And then he gave the analogy, which I, I quote a lot. He says, it's like you're walking around, he says you, meaning a Jew. It's like you're walking ar- around in a museum filled with exhibits that contribute to your perfection, you know, that, that, that every single thing we do has ideas of, of human perfection in it and how to get closer to God through, through perfection of ideas, through mitos, through societal relations. And like the non-Jew just doesn't have that, you know, and like Nava saying, like, it's a tremendous, you know, we have a tremendous <laughs> gratitude to Hashem for giving us the system. And in fact, that segues into this next point. Oh, sorry. Anyone else have any questions or comments uh, that, it does segue yeah. to the next point. Yeah, I'm sorry. Ahead. I had to. I had to go off for a second. Is, yeah. Who were you just talking about? Who was saying that? Uh, Sean, uh, my Ben Noah friend. Okay, got it. Thank you. Yeah. So this segues into this Mishnah, which uh, some of you might recognize in Makos Gimel Tazayin. Uh, you might recognize it. They say this at the like before they say Kaddish sometimes. Rabbi Hanania ben Akasha Omer, Rata Hakadosh Baruch Hu Lazakos Es Yisrael. Rabbi Hanania ben Akasha says God wanted to make Israel uh, meritorious. He wanted to give them zechus. Lefikach, therefore, Hirba lahem Torah umitzvos. He he um, gave them a lot of Torah mitzvos. Harbe Hirba is the verb of making harbe. Shinemar, as it says, Hashem chafetz the mantiko yagdil Torah v'yadir. Hashem desired uh, to um, to make righteous and to make his Torah grow great and uh, be uh, strong. I guess adir. Um, I don't know how to translate adir. Okay, so the Rambam takes an approach to this, which is basically that by having many mitzvos, you're going to find at least one mitzvah that you can like do perfectly. Okay. But the Sefer Achinuch takes a different uh, stance on this. And if you've learned Sefer Achinuch before, you're going to recognize this theme. I think this is the first time he mentions it, but this is a theme that he mentions a lot in the, the Sefer. He says like this, and it doesn't matter what mitzvah this is. Da, that's something in Korban Pesach. This is mitzvah number Tez Zion. Da, you should know. Ki ha'adam, oh, I forgot to bold this. Ki ha'adam nifal kefi pe'ulosav. Know that a man is impacted or is worked on by through his actions is shaped by his actions. And a person's thoughts will constantly be drawn after the actions that he is involved in, in tov imra, whether good or bad. Someone, even someone who's completely wicked in his heart. And all the inclinations of his heart are evil all day. If his spirit awakens him and he makes his striving and involvement in 
persevering in Torah and mitzvot, even not for the right reasons, immediately he will be inclined to the good. Because of, uh, out of he'll come to Lishma. And, and through the power of his actions, it will kill the Yitzhahara. That's the line. Because hearts are drawn after actions. Your, 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 your internal world is shaped by the external actions you do. Even if a person is a complete tzaddik and his heart is upright and, and wholesome, he desires Torah and mitzvot. If he is involved in sketchy things, for example, if the king appoints him to like a bad uh, profession, let's say like the king makes him into like a, uh, you know, uh, an executioner or a torturer, um, and he's involved in that that job every day. He'll change over time from the from the righteousness of his heart to become a complete Russia. Because it's known that a person is impacted by his actions. Like we explained. Okay. Then he says, the Alkane. Uh, God wanted to make Israel meritorious. Therefore, he made a lot of Torah and Why? In order to seize um, through them our thoughts and that all of our involvements should be to benefit us in our end, to perfect us. So, Unlike the Rambam, who says that if you have so many mitzvahs, you'll find at least one that you can perfect. Sefer Achinov is saying, no, it's, it's the idea that Rapersh was saying, which is to make it so that every action we do is infused with Jewish values, to keep our mind constantly on our purpose and our identity and on, and on the ethical and like intellectual values that we hold. Because through good actions, we become affected to be good and to be meritorious for Olam Haba. This is what Chazal meant when they said, anyone who has a mezuzah on their door and tzitzis on their garment and tefillin on their head uh, is assured uh, that they will not sin. Because those mitzvahs are continual mitzvahs, and we are acted upon them uh, by them constantly. Okay, so that's like, I think it's a, it's a complimentary idea to the uh, Sefer Achinuch, sorry, to the uh, Rav Hirsch, that we, it's not just an intellectual reminder of our values, it's that the way our minds and hearts are shaped is through enacting the ideas, and that's why mitz- halacha pertains to every single area of life, and without that, like, I'm sitting here, again, a flash forward, this is all one flashback to, like, me sipping the coffee when Dale, like, is saying how his people are doomed, and then I, I'm thinking about all this and then coming back and I'm thinking in my mind in the thought bubble, obviously your people are doomed. You have no halacha, you know? And in fact, and I'm not, I'm not saying that callously, but like, you know, the Parsha of that week was Parsha's re'e, okay? And what do we do when we go into uh, the Shiva Amamin, when we go into Canaan? It says, es el- uh, this is a Devarim Yud Bey's Aleph through He. Elihachukim. By the way, can you guys hear the music blaring outside of my window? Okay, good. Thank you, Zoom. All right. These are the statutes and judgments that you shall keep to do in the land that Hashem, your God, uh, the God of your fathers has given you to inherit it all the days of your that you live on the land. So what do you do when you go into the land? 
Abed Ta'abdun es Kol Hamakomos, Asher Avdu Sham Hagoim, Asher Atem Yorshim Osam es Elohehem, Al Harim, Haramim, Al Hagvos, Fasakas Koit Ranan. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations that you were driving out worshipped their gods on the, the high mountains and in the valleys and under every leafy tree. You should uh, uproot their altars and, um, and, uh, and shatter their stones uh, and burn uh, their, their sacred trees. And the, the engraved uh, idols, you should... Uh, uh, um, to God in cut down the and you should annihilate their name from that place. So I'm thinking about this because it's that week's that week's Parsha, and I'm thinking that's exactly what happened to the crows. They were in America for hundreds of years practicing their religion, and the only other threat to it was the other tribes that had very similar religions. But then Christianity swoops in, effectively breaks their altars and outlaws their religions, and in in what in less than than uh, I mean we're like what this is like the 1850s it's like 150 years the crow are on the brink of of, of extinction in terms of of, uh, of their culture and their religion and guess what fast forward another 100 years their people will completely assimilate because right now the thing that's holding their people together is like a shared history and shared religion and shared values even though they're not practicing it it's only a matter of time before they move off the reservation and like uh, and, and assimilate totally you know so like. It was just this moment of appreciation. You know, people ask me like what I got out of this trip, you know? Uh, it's not that this is a new idea. It's that seeing a living expression of this idea and a dying expression of this idea infused my keeping of halacha with this, this awareness of like what it is that, 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 you know, what the halachic system does for our continuity. I think, you know, my orientation towards halacha is is, is Tame and Mitzvahs and perfection and what do I get out of it, you know? And I'm aware that halacha is necessary for preserving uh, the, the, the culture and nation of Judaism, but seeing this in action really just made me realize how essential it is. Okay. Any questions or comments? Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just wondering, like, what do you think is the relationship between these ideas and, like, the base Hamikdash? Like, if when we do have the base Hamikdash, do you think there's... Oh. It's going to be like a qualitative difference, or is it just like this this idea of like keeping Judaism alive, okay. like to the perfection? Okay, I'm so glad you asked that because that's the final point of this year. Okay, um, uh, any other questions uh, on this? Yeah, I have a question. Yeah. yeah, did you have any like conflicts about like? I feel like I was like, like compassion wise, of like their thing, their religion, um, you know, being threatened. I would probably have like compassion for it, but insofar as it's not like. Like this is what we would be doing towards, you know, Odeva Zara and Khan. Like, yeah. did you have any personal conflicts or thoughts about that? I did not, and I think part of the reason why has to do with with the other uh, the other question uh, that you asked, which is that I think if I saw something of real value in their religion or culture, then I would have felt compassion that this thing is being lost. And maybe there is stuff like that, but I just didn't see it, so I, I didn't feel like I like. It was almost like, you know, again, uh, I'm hope there's no crows listening to this. Um, it's like if, uh, uh, you know, I grew up as a kid in the eighties and nineties and there was eighties and nineties fashion, you know, fashions go out of fashion. This is essentially just a glorified fashion, you know, like nothing to mourn, you know? Totally um, get that. Well, yeah. Thanks. 
And I, I, I look, I do feel for, I felt for him as like a leader of his people being like watching his people like being uh, destroyed, but I didn't feel anything for it based on like the cultural or religious aspect of it, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. I have a question as yes. well. Okay. So in terms of like the um, idea, um, okay. I, I sort of struggle with like, this only works though, if you understand the Tom of the mitzvah that you're doing, right? Like if you're just putting on film every day, but you have no idea what film is about, then like putting on film won't, won't do anything. Okay. Yes and no. Okay. So certain mitzvahs, um, are their effect is contingent on on knowing the reason or in the case in the case of tefillin and mezuzah uh figuratively and literally the content right so if you don't know what is in the mezuzah it will have like then the ideas are not going to affect you and same thing with tefillin as as divorce said right um uh whereas other mitzvos like um you know uh let's say uh tzedaka, um or you know a lot of the mishpatim certainly uh are going to have an effect on you in uh, in a, a very large form, even if you don't know the philosophy behind it. And then you've got other mitzvahs in between that that have an effect, even if you don't know the reason. Like, take uh, let's do a thought experiment. Like, take Shabbos, right? So, like, let's say you didn't listen to Kiddush or you didn't understand Kiddush and you didn't know that Shabbos was about Zecher Latias Mitzrayim and Zecher Lemaisa Breshis, right? So you would still be affected by Shabbos simply by being forced to like not do Malacha. And there are certain perfections that you get from that as well. So I, I, that's how I think of these of mitzvahs, that there are mitzvahs that it only shapes your heart if you know the ideas. And then mitzvahs that it, it fully can impact you, not fully, it can impact you to a large extent, even if you know zero ideas. Because with Sadaq, again, you're, you're literally... You know, you're doing justice. Even if you don't understand, if you ask a guy who, who a person gives tzedakah, you know, what is tzedek, and they can't answer you in like an answer that would satisfy Socrates, they still are doing tzedek and like being shaped by that, you know. Um, and they're still breaking their connection with their money, etc. And then there's like these mitzvahs in between that 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 certain aspects of the mitzvah shape you, and certain ones don't. Um, but I hear your point. I guess what I would add, though, is that at the very least, let's say you don't know anything about the content of the tefillin and mezuzah, but you do know that it's halakha, like you're not just abs- uh, accidentally keeping it. I think there still is a value in in knowing that like I am deviating from my what would have been my normal routine in order to subordinate myself to this system that is part of God's will. And I think there still is value in that, even if you don't know anything from the particular. In fact, I'm remembering now, I'll post this in the thing also. I, I once uh, investigated the question, you know, we say me talks a little Balishma, right? So the question is, how low can you go? As Rabbi Moskowitz would say, like, uh, how unaware of the reason for the mitzvah do you have to be in order, sorry, how unaware of the purpose of the mitzvah can you be for it to still fit into the category of and I'm just going to tease this, this, uh, this article I wrote and you can read it on your own. The limits of Lolishma, which I'll post in the thingy. Um, so there is this. Uh, uh, oh, you know, no, it's going to be too long to go into this. Okay, so if, if you're interested in in in, uh, in exploring that divorce question a little bit more, then uh, check out that uh, that article, and then you can ask me questions about it. Yeah, Ayala. Do you think that, um, like, just by doing the mitzvos, 
I'm mean, like this being a part of your everyday, even if you have no idea what you're doing, then like eventually you'll be like, well, why am I putting this box on my arm? Yes. I like it will just yeah. lead to that. That is, that is another hope that um, this is uh, that uh, Rav Pesach gave this um, explanation of the Haskell's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, and, and the way he expressed it, the way Rav Pesach expressed it was uh, Halacha is designed to be like those dry bones in Yechezkel's uh, valley, which is that he says, you know, okay, let me go back even further. Uh, uh, um, the, the Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yisrael Chait, said that every mitzvah, he wants to find mitzvah as an idea of human perfection concretized in an action or a behavior. Okay, I'll say that again because it's a cool definition. An idea of human perfection concretized in an action or behavior. And what Rav Pesach said is he said, halacha is designed to survive long droughts without uh, of no philosophy and no thinking okay because as long as you're keeping the guy who's like you know mindlessly reciting kiddush with a mindless family there you know and they're not thinking about it if you keep that action going then there is a chance that somewhere along the line someone is going to wake up and say wait why are we doing this and then investigate it and then they'll they'll see all the reasons for it so that is another that is another part of the the ingenious design of halacha that it keeps these things going even when you have an entire generation that doesn't know why and let me just pair that with something before I get to your other question, Ayala. So Rav Hirsch wrote a lot. There was a whole part of this year that I was going to go into Ben Sora Umore, uh, which uh, I, I'm going to cut out now because I don't have time for. Um, uh, but uh, uh, Rav Hirsch wrote a lot against, um, I'll, I'll show it to you anyway. Um, in the Collected Writings, Volume 7, uh, which is the volume of uh, Jewish education. He has an essay on the Ben Sora Umore. And I'll tell you the idea I had for doing, this is the year that I canceled, okay? Uh, Chazal say, Ben Sor Umora Lohayav Lo Asid Lios. So the the case of the Ben Sor Umora, the wayward and rebellious son, never happened and never will happen. Velama Nechtav, why was it written? Darosh Vakabal Sakhar, expound and receive reward. So what I was going to do based on the idea of Rehearse is I was going to give a shir called How to Be the Perfect Rebel, which is taking these very narrow halachos of the Ben Sora Amora. And if you've ever read through the halachos, you'll see why this can never happen. It's very, very, very like narrow. And the Torah is trying to give a paradigm of what the, the ideal rebel is. And if you extrapolate ideas from that, you'll get insight into Jewish education and parenting. And that's what Refers is doing in this essay. Okay. So for example, you know, the, um, the Ben Sora Amora, has to be, you can only make someone high for Ventura more between the age, if a kid is 13 and puberty has started until three months have passed. Once he's passed that, he can no longer be a Ventura more. So it's only those three months. So Refers has this whole rant against the reformed Jews um, and their uh, what they did to the bar mitzvah ceremony uh, making confirmation. And, and he goes into a whole rant about it. And then he extrapolates from that, like why we care about that, that period between 13 your birthday and like 13 uh and, and three months so you can read that on your own time if you want um just do a search for reverse benzo remora maybe that's how i found it okay anyway but reason why i'm bringing this up now is in uh uh horeb which if you don't know what this is then you should know uh it's a very good book it's reverse's book where he explains the reasons behind all the mitzvahs okay and in uh, it's in English, and in the intro, the intro is a uh, is by Diane Grunfeld, who was a student of Rav Hirsch, and he gives a little history about Rav Hirsch's like um, interactions with the Reform movement. As you might have heard, uh, Rav Hirsch was very militant against the Reform, and the Reform was emerging at this time. 
one of the one of the fathers of Reform Judaism was Abraham uh, Abraham Geiger, and here's just an excerpt from uh, Grunfeld's uh, introduction to Horeb. Speaking of the authoritative code of Jewish law, meaning the Shulchan Aruch, Abraham Geiger wrote in 1837, quote, now open the Shulchan Aruch and give the religious decision whether the pots are, are sorry, let's say whether the pots are usable or not. For heaven's sake, is this the way you want to achieve? Hold on just a second. Sorry. I, I scanned this from my computer, so that's why it's all messed up. Let me just read it in the actual uh, thing. What is this? Page CXXXI. Yeah. He says, now open the Shulchan Aruch and give the religious decision whether the pots and pans are still usable or not. For heaven's sake, is this the way you want to achieve a strong religious revival? Do you not go pale with shame and consumed with anger about yourself and your hypocrisy? There's only one way out. The Medusa's, the Medusa head of the empty forms must be cut off, even if this work is full of difficulties. So in other words, he's advocating, he's saying like, this is going to make people religious if you care about pots and pans. No, the only way forward is just get rid of all the technical halacha, okay? Jokes on him because look where reformed Jews are now, you know, like 200, almost two, not even 200 years later. And reformed Jews are assimilating and, 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 and being lost by the, uh, you know, by, by the hundreds, by the thousands. Right. So like, I don't mean jokes on him. Like, obviously I have compassion for reformed Jews, but like, <laughs> this is what happens when you mess with Halakha, you know? Um, and, uh, and like, it's, it, again, it's, it's cutting off all these lifelines that Reverse was talking about and basically leaving the Jews in a situation like the crows, where as long as nothing is disturbing the Jewish people, maybe you can keep the values, although I doubt that also. Uh, but then once you have forces that are like anti-Semitic or like assimilation, forget about it. Okay. Ready for the last part of this year? I hope we can go over time uh, a little bit because uh, uh, I want to read this in full. Uh, obviously, if you have to leave, you have to leave. So, um, I, uh, one of the, one of the, the, the things I love about this year is, uh, my schedule happens to work out that I can go back to my Rebbe's Gemara year. I can go back to Rav Pesach's uh, Gemara year. And this year, you know, Rav Pesach only picks the most difficult areas in all of Shas to do. So he's picking, uh, Zvachim, right? Korbanos. Okay. So I have a Chavrusa that I started this week to try to get background in Zvachim because, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say most of us are not familiar with Korbanos. So the Rambam in his Perish Mishnayos has a Hakdama to Kachim or a Hakdama to Zvachim to Korbanos. And listen to what he says. Raisi Lahaktim Devarim Bechaluki Hakorbanos Uskira Sugeim Lifnesha Askil Bepir Sederzeh. I have seen fit to preface uh, with uh, principles in the divisions of Korbanos and an overview of their categories before I begin my, my explanation of this, uh, this order of Mishnah. Okay, so in other words, he's going to give a, 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 an introduction, an overview. What brought me to this, even though the divisions of Korbanos is, is, is simple, all of these are just open psukim in the Torah. He says, and it's impossible to bring in like something astonishing or any deep analysis. Okay, and if, by the way, if you go through this, uh, this thing, it's very dry, just facts about Korbanos, okay? He says, why do I do this then? Is because this matter of Korbanos has already been lost by our numerous sins. The only people who study it are very few. And the concepts are not recalled quickly by people to remember them 
Even people who already studied them. Okay, why? Now here's the important line. Because there are no actions which cause you to review them. And people don't ask about them at all. So the point where the greatest chacham and the the ignorant uh, member of the masses are equal. And the majority of students don't know anything about korbanos, even the things that are stated in the pesukim, um, uh, stated openly in the pesukim. Okay. So those two things, he's saying, why do we not know anything about korbanos, even the basic facts? Because there are no actions that cause us to review them. And people are not curious about them in order to ask questions. Okay. And again, so the first point was evident in, in, in the crow that they don't have these actions in halacha that remind them of their values. But secondly, the crows don't have Talmud Torah. There's no text. There's no like set teachings that they have where they can review crow philosophy or crow ideas. So it doesn't promote curiosity into their values. And therefore, the people who are interested in the values might keep them going through stories and through teaching their children and such. But there's no vibrant intellectual culture that's going to make them think about their ideas, you know. And the Ramam is saying this about Kachin, okay, about Korbanos. Now, Ayala's question was, you know, um, what effect did the, the destruction of the base of Mikdash have, okay? Um, so I want to read something to you, which is in the... Uh, you know, there are a couple of good editions of the Ramam. This is the Makbili version, which is uh, Yochai Makbili. It's the one, it's, I, I can't, I can no longer say the one volume. Oh, I can't show you my edition because it's all broken up from usage. Um, so I'll get my second one. It's, uh, it's this edition of the Rambam, uh, the one volume. Uh, there is a great intro there. And in some editions, it is in English. Okay. And he gives, the author, Rav Makbili, gives a, a, a beautiful interpretation of uh, this, um, uh, this statement of Chazal that says, and you might recognize this from the Siddur, Tana de Eliyahu, it was taught in the house of Eliyahu, Kol halachos yom ben olam haba. Anyone who learns halachos every day is promised that he's going to be a member of Olam Haba. Shnemar, as it says, halichos olam lo, the ways of the world, halichos olam belong to him. Do not read the ways of the world, rather halachos, the laws of the world. Okay, so the question is, what does this mean? Now, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit over time. Ordinarily, I would love to like analyze with this, this with you, but I don't want to go too much over time. So we're just going to read his analysis. Okay, so the question is, what does it mean that if you learn halachos every day, then you, you get a place in Olam Haba? So here's what he says. Now, this is Rav uh, Makbili. Uh, each morning we recite the following at the beginning of the prayer service. Um, uh, this is one of the um, things that is customary to say uh, every morning. Okay. Uh, I don't know if everyone has this minog, but he says, so he, he quotes our, our, our drasha. This teaching signifies more than a simple pun. It gets to the essence of halacha and its purpose. Reviewing halachot in all their manifold detail has the awesome power. That's, it is assured, right? Move talk, you're promised, you're guaranteed a place in the law of paving the pathways of the true way of thinking about the world and a correct apprehension of life, okay? So he's saying halichos olam, the ways of the world, means having the correct way of viewing life. And he's saying the pathway to that is learning halachos every day. The transition from halachot to halichot is the transition from outward acts to molding awareness and consciousness of God. 
review of decided halachos, meaning psak halacha, is the key to this consciousness, as long as the student considers not only where the law comes from, but also what its telos is, what its purpose is. Like Devorah was saying, you have to have you have to think about the reasons for the mitzvah, not just the mitzvah itself. So we're not talking about just dry, like learning of like what to do. You have to do that, but you also have to learn what the reason is. Just as musical notations on paper can generate real music that subsequently affects the soul, so too the halachot can only transform into halichot in context of a life that is fully conscious of their internalization and actualization. Okay, so now he gives uh, an example of this, okay? Thus, halachot, the actions, and halichot, the worldview, form a single fabric in the teaching of Torah, a fabric that must not be disconnected, which may repair character and straighten out actions in the Ramam's wonderful formulation from the end of the Book of Sacrifices. Ramam says that that's the purpose of halacha, to lasakin deos uliyasher kol hamasim, to straighten out character traits and to, sorry, to correct character traits and to straighten out all your actions. One of the most penetrating expressions of this is in the halacha about the cities of refuge. Uh, this is in the laws of murder and self-defense. If a student was banished to a city of refuge for doing an unintentional murder, his rabbi goes into exile with him. As it is said, v'chai, um, oh, I forgot what the Hebrew is. V'chai imach, he shall live. No, I forgot what the Lushan is. So what is it? What is the drasha? You must take care of him so that he may live. And for those who have acquired wisdom and those who aspire to a life without learning is like death. Okay. So stop and just appreciate the beauty of the idea. Okay. If, uh, just to talk it through, let's say, I murder someone. Okay. Or you murder someone unintentionally, right? Manslaughter, not, not murder. I should say you manslaughter someone. If this were the time of the base of Mikdash, I would have to go to the city of refuge and all of my Talmudim would have to come with me. Or if you murdered, uh, manslaughtered someone, then I would have to go into the city of refuge with you. Why? Because the Torah says you have to provide for life and life without learning is like death. And you need your Rebbe and the Rebbe needs his tummy to him in order to live. Okay. So it's a beautiful halacha with the reason like built into it. Okay. So Rav Makbila goes on and he says, the power of this halacha as wonderfully formulated by the Rambam does not lie in the practice that it mandates, but in what it teaches about the essence of life and death. And he quotes the more Nebuchadnezzar 142, life means proper attitudes or proper outlooks, not only in the sense of accumulating information, even if they are comprehended, but in man's ability to live with that comprehension in his awareness and consciousness, allowing it to accompany him at all times. This wonderful halakha helps articulate a profound understanding of the gap between the full telos of the Torah, the purpose of Torah, and the role that it fulfills today. All right, this is transitioning now to the, question, the answer to Ayala's question. This halacha appears among the laws pertaining to cities of refuge, which are not practiced today because they do not appear in the Shulchan Arach. I mean, it's not that it's not practiced today because they don't appear in the Shulchan Arach. It's not practiced today because we don't have cities of refuge, but it does not appear in the Shulchan Arach. However, it remains significant because it pertains to normal life in all times. Its omission from the standard curriculum of Torah study due its contemporary impracticability completely misses out on the Torah's intention. Okay, in other words, he's saying... If you only learn the halachos in the Shulchan Aruch, you will only learn the halachos that are practiced today. But what you're missing is all these halachos which are not practiced, but still teach you what the Torah's halichos olam is, what the Torah's view of life is, and having the proper attitude and, and view of, of how you should live. And then he says, this halacha is not unique. There are numerous halachot dealing with ritual purity, the temple, the sacrifices, uh, uh, the Sanhedrin, Nazirism, and more. To appreciate the degree to which we are missing out on the Torah, it is enough to note that we can fulfill only about a tenth of the Torah's 613 mitzvot. 
However, in order to acquire the proper attitudes, the entire oral law must be comprehended. The Mishnah Torah is the only work that can offer that, and that is not an exaggeration. There is no other book that that outlines every single halakha for all 613 mitzvos uh, in a concise, uh, finalized form other than the Mishnah Torah. And that's why I am a big, you know, I push uh, learning the Mishnah Torah a lot. Okay, we're almost done with this. In short, the point of halakhic decision-making is not just knowing what to do. Its primary goals, one of its primary goals is that through the actions, a Jew will learn the correct attitudes. All perspectives on life find resolution through the totality of the Torah's commandments. By totality, I mean the entire oral law. Each law reflects different facets, and a person must go beyond reviewing the halakha, observing or striving to observe the halakha, or understanding the halakha, uh, but must remain conscious of them and live them. This expectation entails the effort of studying, of fitting laws together, and of plumbing the depths of their conclusions. From this perspective, the Mishnah Torah is more than a halakha compendium to know the details of what is forbidden and permitted and the like for all mitzvot. Rather, it also includes matters of attitude and worldview not just because it incorporates passages that address ethics and Jewish thought, but because the halakha itself is itself an expression of a worldview and an attitude. The strong link between halakha and Jewish thought can filter out vain and nonsensical viewpoints. With respect to this unbreakable link, the more Nebuchim and the Mishnah Torah complement each other, each picking up where the other leaves off. So to answer Ayala's question, what are we missing when we don't have the Mikdash and all these halakhos? So, and is it just quantitative? The answer is it's quantitative and qualitative. We are only fulfilling... Uh, a tenth of the 613 mitzvot. But more than that, we don't have the actions which cause us to study these halachos, you know, and therefore, because we don't study the halachos, we don't have the worldview and the awareness and the attitudes that, that we should have. So for example, you know, people, manslaughter happens today. And what happens is it gets handled by the secular authorities. But if we knew these halachos, we would filter it through what would the Torah say and what would the Torah do and how would the Torah cause us to, to view this, you know? Uh, and that would reinforce and, and guide us towards thinking about life in the way that Hashem intended. So we were lacking, like there's a certain, the sum is greater than the whole of its part. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts, you know? Because we, we don't have this piece, this piece, this piece, but because we don't have all these pieces, we don't have the totality of the views uh, uh, of how God wants us to look at the world, and therefore we're fundamentally lacking. It's not just missing individual uh, halachos, it's missing like the full system. And the best we can do is Talmud Torah Kanegat Kulam, is study the halachos of the Mishnah Torah. And, and to an extent, also, like you could do the studying like other areas of Gemara, but the Mishnah Torah is the only one that lays it out like in halachic form and then like compensate for it intellectually by at least knowing what God would have us do in these scenarios. So are you saying that by not living it, we're, we, we're missing out on all the, both the experiential learning and the systemic keeping certain aspects of it alive? Yes. And even though we can't live it, you could at least learn it. And that would give you some, it would shape your values in life in, a, in some way, even though it's not the same as living it, you know, like, like having Mikdash and being there and seeing it. And doing bringing korban chatas and leaning on it and doing vidui is going to affect you much more than learning the halachos. But at least if you learn the halachos, you'll get what we're supposed to do, and you can like think about that and get perfection from the ideas, even though it's nowhere near the actual thing. I have a question, which I don't know. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I don't know who's. Yeah, I was just saying thank you. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's like too big of a question for now, but like. In what sense do we see halacha as like 
the details which are necessary when you have laws. So like, there's not, I think the raw mom talks about this somewhere, but I'm not exactly, yeah, I don't exactly know what he means, but like, in what sense do we try to get ideas from the halachos? And in what sense are we just like, like, we think about it from like a law perspective. I don't know, yeah. like what the language is. So I have a, uh, uh, an article I wrote on this called are, are the mitzvahs arbitrary or the pillow muscle where I go into, you know, you know, maybe we should, maybe we should do a share on this at some point. Maybe this one I don't want to spoil for you. I mean, if you've read it, then fine, fine. And you could read it on your own. Uh, but um, well, just to clarify what I was asking, like, you know, certain mitzvahs have, um, sorry, certain aspects of mitzvahs have reasons and certain aspects of mitzvahs are just there because uh, you need to formulate the law. Like, like the example is like on a stop sign, you know, like s- the word stop is is like part of the Tom mitzvah, but like the exact, you know, the fact that what, what shape is, is, I always forget what shape stop signs are. Is it a he- uh, octagon or yeah. So it's octagon. Uh, if it were a pentagon, it would still serve as a stop sign. Right. So like, that's like arbitrary in a sense, you know? So I think I, is that what you're asking? Ayala? Like, like when, yeah. So, so I, I, maybe we should do a share on that sometime later on this year. Uh, I, I think that that pays going back to, it's a good question though. Okay. That is all I had to say for, uh, for this share, I guess the, just to bring it home, the upshot is again, I did not gain this idea from my trip. I gained a deeper recognition of the truth of this idea that halacha, not only like has ideas of perfection, but it is absolutely integral for keeping an awareness of these ideas on our minds. And more importantly, in ways for preserving the ideas in our nation from generation to generation. And that's how we've survived for so many years, even though, and look, the amazing thing is we only have a 10th of these halakhas that we're practicing. And yet that's still sufficient to keep us going and to keep like the core of these ideas around, you know, um, imagine how much we would thrive if we had the entire Taryag, you know? Uh, and again, you know, it's, it's made me, it filled me with gratitude of, you know, Yisrael Mo. Uh, you know, blessed is Hashem who gave the Torah to his people, Israel, and the crows do not have a Torah. So they're, I mean, not only do they not have the ideas, they can't even preserve what they have because they don't have a halakhic system. So it's just like, you know, just really, it was a worthwhile trip for that one insight alone, even though I got a lot more insights uh, to appreciate like uh, what Hashem did for us by giving us the Torah and to appreciate like the system that we're part of. Okay. That's the year. That's super cool. Yeah, uh, this is this one of the things we talk about at the Seder every year. Yeah. Same thing here. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's, and Seder is our inaugural like introduction to the, of, of the, of the children to mitzvos and to the philosophy of mitzvos. So it's a good, it's an appropriate time. Okay, any yes. other questions or comments? Thank you so much. This is really cool. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Okay, thanks. I'm glad. And look, you know, every time I get plagued with like thoughts of like, do I really want to give this weird cheer? Like, like it's going to fall flat on its face and no one's going to be interested. So it really means a lot that if you gain something out of the cheer. Uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad it, it went over well and that I could uh, convey it. Because I, again, I did not want this idea to fade away without expressing it to someone. I, I jokingly told uh, Ari Fishbein, you know, we, in, in Yeshiva, there's like a little Dvar Torah between Mincha and Mariv on Friday night. And I guess, um, they, uh, and you know, usually there's a rotation <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, sometimes if there's no one on the rotation, they'll just like look around and like, like say, anyone want to say anything. And I, uh, I told Ari Fishbein who was in charge of this, like last Friday night, when I got to, to shul, I was 
hoping and praying that no one would ask me to speak because what would have happened is I would have tried to give over all of this in seven minutes because I had to express it. I just felt like I had to express it and it would have like burned up like a, a sheer, you know? Uh, and so thankfully, like no one asked me to speak. Um, That's hilarious. And, yeah. So, so I'm glad that like, and I'm, look, I'm, I'm thankful that like I have people who are interested in this Friday morning sheer because I don't have to be constrained on what I give Shira on, so I could like give Shira on whatever I want. And I'm just glad that you guys are open to it. So thank you for for coming, and I'm looking forward to like learning with you this year. Thank you so, yeah, thank much. You so much. I totally love this. Okay, good. Me thank too. Right. Thank Me you. too. I have Me a too. question. Can I ask yeah. you like a totally unrelated personal question? Sure. sure. So I have a cover- someone who I want to start learning with. I was wondering if you have any suggestions for like something that we could learn. She's very like thoughtful and logical and like yeah. really insightful, but I don't exactly know like what to learn. Is there like a book which you could recommend or like a safer, I don't know, something. Yeah. So um, wh- what type of uh, thoughtful, like, is this, you want something like in like philosophy, ethics, like. Yeah. Like philosophy and ethics and like Torah, like mythos, like not only yeah. like. Pure so philosophy. What I recommend doing is, uh, you know, the Sefer Achinoth goes through every mitzvah based on the Parsha, and he goes into the philosophy behind every mitzvah. Um, and what I would suggest doing is, uh, you don't have to start from the beginning. You could, you know, we, we happen to be at the tail end of a really like mitzvah rich, mitzvah rich series of Parshios. Um, so you could either like, like, pick one of the mitzvah rich series of Parshios, like Kedoshim and, you know, Kisete, Re'e, Shoftim. Uh, and just go through mitzvah by mitzvah. And you don't even have to read the whole Sefer Chinef. Like read the first paragraph, which is an overview of the mitzvah. And then the Shirashi HaMitzvah, which is a Tom HaMitzvah. And then discuss that. And it's available in English, you know, um, and you're always going to get some ideas from it. Or you could use the Sefer Chinef and like look, learn through mitzvahs that you're interested in. Like not be beholden to the order of the book or to the Parsha, you know, and just like uh, learn mitzvahs that you're interested in. And there's a lot, like it's, knowledge and textual based enough that you can like be learning a safer and not just like having abstract uh, open discussions, but it allows you to like think on your own and like get insights and, uh, and, and, and talk about them. That, that would be my number one recommendation. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds really good. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. Have a good job everyone. Thank you so Thanks, much. Everyone. You All too. Right, bye. If you've gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss, and my Zelle slash Chase QuickPay and PayPal are mattschneeweiss at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor an article, share, or podcast episode, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbischneewas at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.